You are listening to a Ruth Millington Extreme Holidays podcast. Extreme stories from extraordinary destinations as told by intrepid world travellers. Presented by travel writer and adventure junkie Ruth Millington. Survivor and heroine of the 2003 BAM earthquake in Iran. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Extreme Holidays podcast. I'm Ruth Millington. I'm an award-winning writer, blogger and travel expert. And just like my guests, I too have been caught up in some extreme situations. In this episode, I'm speaking to the remarkable Dr. Kimberly Brown. In 1994, Kimberly embarked on a lifelong dream of travelling the globe overland which unexpectedly ended in a refugee camp on the Thai-Burmese border in the middle of a war. Now based in San Jose, California in the United States, it was whilst working with Karen refugees which in part inspired Kimberly to qualify as a naturopathic doctor. So without further ado, let's travel the world together. show Kimberly. How is it over there in California? A very sunny day, thank you. Well, compared to here, which is foggy and cold, I wish I was there right at this very moment. You describe this as a lifelong dream. Why so? Well, when I was four years old, I decided I wanted to see the world and I wanted to really see what it looked like. So I had the idea of traveling overland and by sea. So was this inspired by reading books or watching television programs as a child? It was inspired by Gilligan's Island. There was an island out there that was lost. And I just was so curious, where is this? I was in the car with my mother when I was three years old and I was looking over the hills and I was so curious what was over them. Oh, I said to her that I wanted to discover new places in the world. And she said to me, they've all been discovered. And I said, no. Nobody's found Gilligan's Island. This mammoth trip that you took in 1994, it started in California. Can you tell me a little bit more about that first part of the journey? Yeah, it started on uh, the Green Tortoise, which is a hippie bus, or traditionally was a hippie bus. They're still around. We traveled from San Francisco south on this southern journey, uh, making stop in Texas, uh, this beautiful park, crossing the Rio Grande into Mexico by boat, Louisiana, camped, we slept on the bus. It was fun. It was about 20 people from around the world. It was that dream of seeing the world, you know, pass by me to really get a feel for how big the world was. After the States, you went on to the Galway Festival in Ireland. What inspired you to go there? I had been to Ireland before when I was 18, wanted to return and work there. So I just graduating university, I was able to get a worker's permit. And how did you feel? So, you know, you're quite young, you're an American. They were very welcoming. My Irish friends thought it was very funny that I knew how to Irish step dance because that was not very cool. I think they liked that I knew something about the culture, the history. Now, there was quite a journey before you actually got to the refugee camp. Oh, 
Well, Ruth, you've been to China, haven't you? Yes, many times. Traveling in China in the 1990s. That was uh, challenging. I'd say it's one of the hardest countries I ever traveled in. And I was exhausted after one month in China. And that's why I cheated and flew. I got I got really sick and I actually got sick the night before I left for Thailand. So I'd already planned to leave. Flew into Chiang Mai. I ended up staying about a month in northern Thailand. I did get better, but I was very weak. I'd lost about 20, 25 pounds. I was not ready to travel, but I heard that there were refugees on the Thai Burmese border that needed teachers. It was very informal. I was told to go to Mesot, Thailand, go stay at this hostel because that's where the teachers went. You meet a teacher who's leaving their post and you take their post. And then you inform the Korean National Union that you're going to be at this camp teaching. Can, first of all, you just explain a little bit more about this refugee camp and who were the refugees and why they were there? Burma, which is also known as Myanmar now has been at war since the British left within themselves. There's just been strife, which you would have probably heard of recently with the Rohingya refugees. I don't know the date when Aung San Suu Kyi was elected, put under house arrest. I mean, so Burma fell apart at that time, and this was a long time ago. What was that, the 80s or early 90s? Aung San Suu Kyi has now been deposed. It is not a stable country. Burma is the most ethnically diverse country in Asia. The different ethnic minorities had been at war with the Burmese authorities, government, for since the British left, was my understanding. They were fleeing violence and war and terror. Can I say, some people listening to this might be confused why I keep saying Burma instead of Myanmar, and that's because Myanmar is the name that represents the ruling ethnic majority. Burma is a neutral term that was given by the British. Whether or not they should be called Burma or something else, I don't know. But out of respect for the ethnic minorities, I call it Burma. When you were at the refugee camp, what was your actual role? I was teaching adult Bible study students who were preparing to take an exam in English in order to become pastors. So Christianity was one of the main religions within this refugee camp, was it? It was not the main. My understanding is that there were equal amounts of Buddhist and Christian refugees at this camp and a minority of Karen who were still animist. What was it like living in this camp? It was amazing. I lived with three Korean women. I slept on a pad in a bamboo hut uh, that was raised off the ground. It was a large room, open for the most part, and it also doubled as our living room, our dining area. I slept on one pad next to two younger women who had their own pad. I had a mosquito net. And then there was another room that Blooming Night stayed in, and she was the mother of our hut. She was older. It was quite comfortable. What about electricity? What food did you eat? There was electricity for a couple of hours in the evening. We had a generator and the food was very simple. Um, Local vegetables, uh, rice, a little bit of meat. They fed me very well because I was a volunteer. And I didn't know that at first until a European woman who'd been there for years told me how difficult it was for them to get food, how expensive it was. That's when I told them, I want to eat what you're eating. 
then it was pretty plain rice with chili paste, vegetables, because we were able to grow our own vegetables on the camp. Where did you bathe, for example? I had the option of bathing in a private little stall with a bucket of water and cup, but I preferred to bathe in the stream like the other Karen did. You had to bathe under your sarong. So you had to pull it up, keep it tight, go under the water, wash, come up, come out of the river, put a dry sarong over it, drop the wet sarong off, and wash your clothes. I would do that every afternoon after teaching. What was the reaction that you got? They were always so grateful. It's the only time in my life that every day quite a few people would say thank you teacher for coming to help us. And these were not only my students, they were children, older adults, so grateful to have outsiders coming to help them. Were there any illnesses within the refugee camp? Yes, mostly TB, a lot of TB. I suffered chronically with it. I remember one woman died of cervical cancer which seems so sad because it's a preventable disease for the most part in our countries. Uh, treatable. There is no treatment there on a refugee camp. I was not aware of it and it did take me by surprise. And how did you react when you know people were dying around you? I had a profound feeling of injustice, of how unfair it is that some people do not have access to care that is available for others. There were children living in the camp, young children. Mm-hmm. How were they affected? I think the Korean were very grateful for what little they had, and the children always seemed to be very happy. There was one incident where three boys disappeared on the camp, and Blooming Knight told me they'd been kidnapped, but I didn't believe her. I thought, who would kidnap three little boys? And she said she feared that they'd been kidnapped to be sold into prostitution, sex slavery. It took me a long time to realize what she said was possibly true. And now we know it does happen. Both you and me have been to Thailand. We know the horror stories. But I suppose you were 24 at that age. And, you know, forgive me for saying, probably slightly naive. Right. I was 25 and turned 26 in the camp. But yes, still very naive. Even though I had traveled in Central America, had worked with indigenous people in Guatemala, I hadn't had not worked with refugees before. Do you think this is because when you start working with refugees, you you sort of get into their head, you start understanding more about what they went through. It's not just literally just watching the news. Yes, these people had no country. They had nobody except a few foreigners and a few very generous ties that cared about their predicament, but they had no power. And until you see that up close and personal, it's difficult to understand. I think that's one of the beauties of travel, but also one of the traumatic sides of travel is that you do start understanding more about the true horrors of these situations. We are very fortunate in coming from countries where we don't witness that. I know you have mentioned before, for example, that the, the Karen boys had two choices at the age of 12, mm-hmm. to either turn to religion or soldiering. Yes. Compared to children, say, in the UK or America, there's just no comparison. How did you come to terms with that? I don't know if I did come to terms with that. How can you come to terms with that? They're children. At one stage, you touched 
an AK-47. Mm-hmm. How did you react? The camp, Mela, is still around, and it's one of the largest camps today and was then. They had a defense force. It was small. It was not something that we would think of as a defense force. They did not look like soldiers. They dressed like other Karen, but they were carrying machine guns. Were there a lot of them? No. They were on the outskirts of the camp, usually. But one day, one of them came in to our hut, was sharing a meal with, and the AK-47 was right there, and I was looking at it. And he said, ah, here, hold it. So I said, no, no, thank you. Ah, go on. So I touched it. I was scared, and they all thought it was very funny. (laughs) Later on, I was told by an American who had been years on the border that it's probably a good thing I did not handle the AK-47 because the Corinne never used the safety. Oh my gosh, it makes me nervous talking about it today. We may joke about it, but those guns were used for fighting. Mm. Child soldiers essentially had been using these type of guns. It must be really quite horrific knowing that deep down. Yeah, it is horrific because no child should have to be trained in killing. Ruth Millington's Extreme Holidays Podcasts. Life-changing stories and adventures from the world's intrepid holidaymakers and travellers. For many years, there hadn't been any hostilities. And then you show up and suddenly things start kicking off. Across the border in Burma, the Karen were fighting the Burmese military. My understanding is that there was a defector from the Karen military who gave over the secrets of where the Karen military outposts were along the border. So when I was there, the Burmese military swept down the border on the Burmese side. But because the refugee camps in Thailand were a connection to the outside, they did not want them there. The Burmese military then began a campaign against the refugee camps within Thailand. They bombed one camp. They tried to burn down our camp. They kidnapped the leaders from our camp and murdered them. They... I'm sorry, it's um, difficult for me to talk about. Those are the examples I know of. And I didn't even know it was happening until after it had happened. Except, of course, for the bombing, which was, in fact, one of the last things that occurred because Thailand had a little issue with Burma bombing Thai territory. So that is when the Thai military got very involved. And I did actually meet a Thai general. Just like, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. You should leave. And I think he was generally concerned about my safety because I also learned that the Burmese military was threatening the lives of any foreigners on the camps. They never harmed a a foreigner, as far as I know, at that time, but it was a threat. But there was a night when they did come into the camp with machine guns. Yes. And you were, at that moment, very much in danger. Can you explain a little bit more about that? It was in the middle of the night, and we awoke to the sound of machine gun fire. Got dressed very quickly. I grabbed food and water. Two other girls grabbed their Bibles, and Blooming Knight grabbed her old rifle, even with a bayonet on the end, ready to protect us. And she said, let's stay. 
wait until we know more. But we were ready to run out into the forest and head for the road and safety. How did you feel at that moment when you could hear the machine guns going? Awake. The fear didn't hit me until later. It was just ready to go. I even dressed all in black. It was this clarity of, I need to be in black, nobody can see me, I'm ready to go. It's quite interesting you say that because a lot of people, when they're on the road and they suddenly go into these very dangerous situations, which does happen, mm-hmm. it, there's this surrealness to the situation that they're in. They don't panic, they don't fear, but they know they have to get out. Was that what you were going through then? Yes, exactly what I was going through. And when later did it dawn on you about the potential dangers of that situation? Probably a month later, because the next day, the story was, it was a misfire. It was our people and it was a misfire. Nothing to worry about. Did you believe them at the time or were you a bit... "Mm." I did. Remember, I was a very naive young American. (laughs) Of course, it was just a misfire. (laughs) And maybe I wanted to believe that. Were there any other occasions... I had some friends on another camp, thought, oh yeah, I'll go visit them. But Blooming Knight said, you should take an escort. And she chose a good escort for me. He was probably in his late 20s, had been a soldier for many years, spoke fluent English. I didn't understand why she wanted him to come with me. I thought maybe she was just concerned for my welfare because I hadn't been there before. So he took a Song Tao which is a pickup truck covered in the back. You know, it's like a taxi. The border, walked to a market town, got on a boat because this camp did not have any roads. Get to the camp and it is quiet. There is nobody there. Surprisingly, my friends were still there and a handful of Corinne. They were very somber and tell me that they're leaving. The camp's been evacuated. The Burmese military is threatening to attack and they are right across the river. So I left with them in their evacuation. The whole time we were very scared because we knew that there were Burmese soldiers on the other side of the river with machine guns. There was nowhere to hide. It was a teeny boat. It was one of these long, narrow boats. Did you feel like a sitting duck? Yes, exactly how I felt was a sitting duck. What did your family and friends feel about it when you told them? Or have you told them? I did tell them, and it was many years ago. I would say that most of my American friends didn't care. So I became involved with movements here to free Burma. I testified at the Oakland City Council. They early, you know, they boycotted business in Burma. So my activist friends cared. There's a profound disconnect for many people. Maybe also the fact that they can't do anything. They feel powerless. Perhaps knowing me inspired them to call their representatives to encourage a boycott of Burma, which did eventually happen. The United States boycotted business with Burma at the time. And it seemed that Burma, things did improve. I think part of travel is that it exposes you to all these different prejudices around you know often we hear in the news that there's only prejudice against certain types of people but from my own personal experience across Asia I've seen it you know all different areas around the world is that your experience too absolutely all people can be prejudiced against other people when I've traveled 
particularly between about 1995 to 2012, I came across a lot of racism against Americans by other fellow travellers. They would often call other Americans loud, intrusive. What's your view on that? I agree with you. I find it insulting and prejudicial. And when I met travellers who felt like that, I wanted nothing to do with them. I think they're a part of the problem. I never was attacked personally, but once there was this New Zealander in Guatemala who asked me, what does it feel like to be an American traveling and everybody hates you? And I said to him, they don't? What are you talking about? And he said, oh no, I was in Nicaragua and they all hate Americans. And I said to him, well, I have not traveled in Nicaragua, but I've lived in Guatemala. I've spent a lot of time in Honduras and I speak Spanish, and people are always very friendly, welcoming. I think that there's often a lot of prejudice against group of travelers, right? So when I was in Egypt, an Egyptian taxi driver said to me he hated German travelers. Then when I was in Thailand, this was a shock, I was traveling with an Israeli, and later when that Israeli wasn't with me, the hotel owner said, I wouldn't have allowed that person to stay here except they were with you, an American. But I think what you have demonstrated today is that you've seen the extremes of prejudice. You've gone to a refugee camp. Absolutely, yes. And I think that I've come to a new understanding of prejudice and something that we're talking more about where I live in this country. There is prejudice with powerlessness. So have I been a victim of prejudice personally? Yes. But I also have a sense of entitlement as a white person. Then I'm a white woman. So I've experienced a lot of sexism for sure. So Kimberly, tell me, what did you learn from this experience of working in a refugee camp? It made me realize that I want to make a difference in people's lives. And it gave me a great appreciation for the privilege I have as a white woman from a wealthy country. I had the means and ability to travel I had a passport. I didn't even need a visa for most countries. And the mere fact that I have a country that recognizes me as a citizen and that refugees like the Karen and refugees now, they don't have that privilege, that privilege that we take for granted. The simple fact that we have a country to call our own. We have a country that has an embassy in a country where we're at. We have a country that will own us. Ruth Millington's Extreme Holidays Podcasts. Life-changing stories and adventures from the world's intrepid holidaymakers and travellers. Now we come to the quick fire question round where I'm going to ask Kimberly a set of questions. Kimberly, are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Mountains or oceans? Oceans. Long haul or short haul? I don't know. <laughs> Favourite place? got to say England. You know, it's funny. That did actually come into my mind. Worst place that you've been to? I dare not say. <laughs> Apart from the clothes on your back, what is the one thing you always take with you whilst on your travels or holidays? Passport. Where would you go back to? Thailand. What places are still your bucket list to visit? Iceland. South Africa. Oh, come on. Only one answer. 
<laughs> Travelling solo with friends or family? Solo. What's the longest period you have travelled for? One year. If there's one thing you could change about travelling, what would it be? The ability to travel with my big dog. What is a great tip for extreme travellers? Stay flexible. Thanks, Kimberly. This is such a remarkable story, not only because you are able to help these refugees, but you've also demonstrated how you have been so influenced on, on able to influence other people about these really difficult situations which people often don't know about, especially in places like Thailand, where you know people just go on holiday to go lie on a beach. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak about my time there and the wonderful people who I met who are still there. There are still refugees in Thailand. And to all those listening in, this is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for joining me on my Extreme Holidays podcast. If you would like to come on the show, do drop me a line via my website, www.ruthmillingtonauthor.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on your podcast app. It means you'll be the first to hear when new episodes come out and it will help others to find this podcast. I'll be back next episode with more life-changing and adventure travel stories. So thanks for listening. have been listening to a Ruth Millington Extreme Holidays podcast. Extreme stories from extraordinary destinations as told by intrepid world travellers. Find out more at ruthmillingtonauthor.com or search online using Ruth Millington Extreme Holidays. Ruth Millington's Extreme Holidays podcast is sponsored by HelpYouFind.me, a secure yet simple way to share private data for use in emergency situations that is end-to-end, encrypted and accessible only by you and the people you choose to share it with. Perfect for the extreme traveller. Find out more at HelpYouFind.me forward slash extreme 10 and get a 10% discount when you sign up. Details are also in the show notes.